0: And black success.
1: You're listening to Trailblazers.fm, an interview styled podcast that delves deep into bold conversations with successful black entrepreneurs and leaders. Join us to learn actionable strategies, viable tactics, and innovative tools that you can put to use immediately on your journey to blazing your trail. And now here's your host, my husband, Stephen A. Hart.
2: What's good, Blazonation? I'm Stephen A. Hart, and in celebration of Women's History Month, I'm turning over hosting duties for March to a dear friend and a past guest of the show, Jennifer Whittle. Jennifer is CEO. And founder of the Borland Group, a 20-year-old boutique public relations firm headquartered in New York City. Her agency specializes in women-led and minority-owned businesses as well as grassroots nonprofits. Today, Jennifer is sharing in a conversation with the amazing Ebony Reed that you don't want to miss. I'll allow Jennifer to introduce and tell you a little bit more about Ebony before she gets into that conversation. And as a reminder, this is a second episode in a special four-part Women's History Month series. Do me a favor. Please share this episode right now with a few Black women you think this would impact most. I do hope you enjoy.
1: Stephen, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Now, I want to start with my own introduction leading up to this wonderful person that we're going to talk with this morning. Now before the internet, before social media, before websites, how many of us can relate to this? You meet someone in person after speaking with them on the phone for a while, and there is a split second after they see you face to face when they realize you are black. That kind of surprise, let's call it, doesn't happen too often nowadays because our photos are everywhere. But that doesn't mean we still don't get a reaction, sometimes negative, sometimes curious of how are you as a black woman are here in this position, in this career, being a boss. There's an ongoing myth that there are very few black women in executive or senior leadership positions like the pipeline is nearly empty. For example, when Joe Biden said he was picking a black woman to be the next Supreme Court justice, there were murmurs about the size of the pool from which he had to pick. It was probably very small, some said. We all know it's not. So all this leads to our very, very special guest today, Ebony Reid. Mm-hmm. Ebony is extraordinary. And once I tell you what she's doing, what she has done, you too will say the same thing. She is extraordinary. She is currently the chief strategy officer for the Marshall Project, a nonprofit that produces journalism about the justice system. Before that, she advised on newsroom-wide coverage of race and women at the Wall Street Journal, where I had the pleasure of meeting her served as AP's New England Assistant Bureau Chief, was named a 40 under 40 recipient in 2015 by the Boston Business Journal, and overall has led news coverage, audience, technology, and revenue efforts at national and local news companies, industry institutions, and in academia. In addition to all of that, she and Louise Story are two of the busiest women in communications. Together they launched the Race and Money Project, a newsletter that explores the history of race and money in America with a special focus on Black Americans. They are writing a book, The Black Dollar, to be published by Harper Collins, And they are lecturing at Yale University on the topic of race and money in America, contemporary business applications. And
0: all of this before
1: she has her first cup of coffee. Welcome, Ebony.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. Nice here. I really, I'm really excited to chat with you today. Oh, so, uh, We're going to have the best
1: conversation. But before we dive into it, can you tell me how you find the
0: time for all of this? Oh, wow. Sometimes I probably wonder that myself. You know, um, really uh, tight time management. Um, you know, I think a lot about... My uh, my personal mission, my long time goals, long term goals. And I think about aligning things uh, with those goals and my mission so that I don't have too much clutter. You know, I can't do everything. And there are always more requests than what I think anyone can actually do. And, um, you know, I use a time management system that one of my professors, Dr. Mary Bixby um, from the University of Missouri, taught me a long time ago. And, um, you know, I still use that that um, that organization uh, system in terms of like blocking out my time and um, making sure I've allocated enough time for different projects and looking long-term and short-term.
1: And the power of saying no too, right?
0: Yes, yes, and the power to say no, which, you know, sometimes it can feel um, like maybe you're letting people down when you say no, but you know, I think a lot about, well, if I don't say yes to everything and I can recommend someone, then I'm helping open the door for someone else.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, how have you moved around in so many different roles? I mean, practicing journalism, business development,
0: advertising, strategy, book writing. Sure. So I don't think about um, careers as a linear path. Um, And I also don't get too hung up on job titles. I look at um, the responsibilities, the skill sets, what's going to be accomplished through the work. And then I decide whether or not that's something that I want to take on, or I think I could be good at it, or that I could benefit the organization. Um, but I've done definitely, you know, some zigging and zagging in my career, and I've always learned from those experiences. Yes,
1: the work world now is so different. When I graduated, it was a linear path. And now, nowadays, if you don't have like multiple different zigzags, as you say, it really is more acceptable. And they think that everyone benefits from it. So anyway, for today's focus, it's on showing up in places unexpected for a Black woman. Can you tell us about your first experience on this?
0: Sure. Um, What I think back... Um, To the beginning of my career, Um, when I graduated from college in 2000, uh, my first job was a reporting job um, at the Daily Newspaper in Cleveland and I was working uh, the night shift at that time I was doing breaking news and um, also some coverage of the police beat. That in the evenings, it was like 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. And um, probably not the most desirable hours. And I knew that I didn't want to stay in that job forever. And my uncle had given me some, some money when I graduated from college. And we had a conversation about me going on to graduate school. So, um, I started one program, but ended up transferring into an online program at Missouri. So, I went back to my alma mater um, to finish my master's in media management. And when I finished, I ascended to a role inside the newspaper um, as a supervisor. And at that time, I was in my mid-20s. I was a black woman. And I was supervising um, people in some cases that had 20 plus years more experience than me. And so, um, you know, I know that I was um, definitely a surprise um, mm-hmm. you know, in that role because it wasn't just that I was a woman of color, but it was also a very young woman sending mm-hmm. um, to a role of leadership and, and supervision of, of other people's work. Mm-hmm.
1: And that was your first experience, but it definitely um, wasn't the last. So as a result, you know, going through your career, oftentimes being the the only black woman or, or in places where it's unexpected for a black woman to be. Do you feel that you have to have to constantly prove yourself, namely that you have to be better, jump higher, perform better because you are a black woman?
0: I definitely think that um, earlier in my career, I felt like that for sure. Um, I think as I have gotten older and matured a little bit, I think that I think about things differently now, you know, and I look at um, the sum of my career accomplishments over the last two decades, not just what I did in one role. And I think that that gives me more confidence to be able to say, you know, I'm Ebony Reed and like, I can do this job and I don't have to, you know, work myself into the ground to, to prove something to someone else. Um, so it, de- I've definitely had in the last couple years, a significant shift in mm-hmm. how I think about that, which is a departure, um, probably in how, you know, I learned things in, from society and from family, you know, growing up in those, you know, expectations, you know, a couple decades ago.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, with my mother, she was telling me that I would always have to you know, prove myself. And I have found that throughout my career, no matter how many accolades I, I may have gotten. I find that for a lot of other Black women as well. And I know that in my career, I'm primarily in public relations, which is primarily a white industry. And I've been doing this for over three decades, that many times with people with whom I work, I am the very first either Black senior executive they worked with or I'm the first black boss that mm-hmm. they ever had so were you the first black boss for many of your staffers
0: I, I was and, and not just for white staffers I've had um, black staffers tell me in different positions I've held that I am the first um, black boss or the first woman boss um, that they've had or the first young black woman boss mm-hmm. that they have. Um, that they have so I definitely have um, you know, experience that for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. So my next question to you was, well, you know, you're the first black woman that they've had to report black or white, um, your subordinates. So how did they react to you being in a position of power that is often not seen or personally experienced by mm-hmm. both non-blacks and
0: blacks? You know, I think it definitely has varied. Um, I've been in some roles in some places where I have been really well received and people um, respected my experience and knew why I was there and what I came to do. And then I've, I've worked in other organizations where I've had more um, pushback and um, people have questioned my credentials, wondered um, if I was qualified to do the work, but I Um, one thing about me, Jennifer, is that I play the long game. Mm. And so I try really hard to not be rattled by Mm. things that other people have going on and to really stay focused on like my personal mission and why I'm there and what I'm doing. But, um, I'm also not afraid to address situations, you know, head on. So sometimes that means that, you know, we might have to have conversations with people that might feel a little bit uncomfortable. But if we don't address, you know, certain things, then certain behaviors can like continue and fester.
1: How do you address those conversations? Because it's never easy to to have those um uncomfortable conversations. And when you're in the workplace, you also have to be very careful about what you say and how you say it. So for listeners who aren't in that position, how would you guide them in first initiating the conversation and then walking them through having the conversation and what how they can react to possibly negative reactions?
0: Right, so I think it depends on um, the culture, the place that you're working. I think the relationship that you have with your supervisor is also at play, whether or not it's something that you need to talk to that person about. Um, I have been, you know, having been a supervisor, um, a lot of times I just try to solve my own problems unless mm-hmm. I really have to escalate it to a manager higher than me because I'm I'm in a role to solve problems. So a lot of times what I will do is I'll evaluate the landscape you know, and look at the entire situation. Um, I will consider what is in my power and what is not within my power, and then I will think about the pros and cons of all of the options that I have before I take any sort of action. And that includes, you know, speaking to a colleague or even talking to my boss. Just I just want to be really thoughtful about um, you know the situation. And then I would say um, it's really important to take notes. Um, you know, because when you want to look back and reflect on a situation, if you have something that you need to address and work, um, notes are like really important. It can be really helpful for you to be accurate in what, you know, has happened. Mm hmm. I
1: totally agree. And I recently took a, a class at Cornell University on inclusive leadership, and they were saying mm-hmm. that when you have these conversations to go to a neutral place, don't have it in your office or the person's office um, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, walls get set up. There is a tone of defensiveness. Mm-hmm. So when you go to a neutral place and it could be. Let's say in a park or in a conference room, even it allows for more of an onflowing, a smoother flowing dialogue.
0: Mm-hmm. And I could see, too, Jennifer, that, you know, in this um, COVID world, um, you know, I was working remote um, before the pandemic um, in a leadership role, but not everyone was. And so I'm sure that there are there are definitely implications there and how people communicate, you know, mm-hmm. um I guess technically for those that are working remote, we're all in a neutral place every day um, because we're, you know, mostly at our home offices. If people are still working in that type of setup,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, bringing up the pandemic,
1: um, how has the pandemic been equalizer or a discriminatory element in your work?
0: Um, That's a great question. Um, This might surprise some people to hear this, but, you know, I think that in some work, especially innovation work, I think that the pandemic has been a little bit of an equalizer if teams were embedded in um, traditional organizations or traditional structures. And the reason I say that is because, you know, this wasn't just my experience in a former role, but I've heard this from other people that ran teams that were trying to create change when their teams were 100% distributed. When you Mm -hmm. think back to, you know, spring, summer of 2020, when everything went completely remote for, significant amount of time, um, colleagues who were in traditional roles that had been accustomed to coming into an office space were trying to figure out how to make remote work. But Mm -hmm. colleagues that were doing more change and innovation, um, what I have heard is that, and my experience has been that they could move faster, that um, all of a sudden the explaining or conversations with um, more traditional um, minded colleagues at lunch at the water fountain <laughs> after work, um, those were interrupted for a while. And that meant that those colleagues working on change could move a lot faster and get things you know, um, launched. And I find that to be an interesting, um, unexpected um, equalizer on work as a result of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I now, agree with oh, Now, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say. Now, of course, you know, there's been a, there was a lot written and documented about the pandemic being, you know, also discriminatory in regards to who could work remote and who had certain resources and the impact on children going to school. So, I definitely think that there are systematic things for us as a society to look at mm-hmm. and. to, learn from, and to improve coming Mm -hmm. out of the pandemic.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, I as I was saying, I totally agree with everything that you you said, and uh, we're going to be entering into a very different world once we finally get to the endemic and finally out of all of this. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, what are the three Uh, principles that guide you in your career that is basically showing up where black women are not traditionally seen? Mm
0: -hmm. The three things that I think about a lot that I would say are my um, my guiding principles would be um, integrity that I operate within the bounds of ethical Um, and moral considerations and values um, are risk taking. And I don't think I don't want anyone to think that this means that I'm just like out here taking uncalculated risk. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier about evaluating the landscape as I'm thinking through how to address maybe a challenging situation. I think about that as well when I'm thinking about taking a risk. So I I I think calculated risks can be healthy um, because it's easy to be fearful when you are the only one or when you are raised to think that, um, you know, you want to play it safe. Um, It it can be easy to say, well, that sounds like maybe a scary thing. Like, you know, for example, when I took my job with the Associated Press in Boston and I was um, a deputy bureau chief there, the chief, William Cole, who hired me came to Detroit to interview me. I was from Detroit. I was working there at the Detroit News. He had family there. I did not see Boston, believe it or not, until I showed up and moved there for my job. Wow. And, um, that would, to some people, seem to be like a little risky, but I had great trust in him and in the Associated Press. I got online and I looked at pictures and Mm -hmm. I said, you know what, I'm going to go there. And people are telling me that they haven't had many women that have worn the title of chief and I'm going to go there and I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. So I I think about risk taking, but calculated risk. And then the third thing um, I think about discipline. So trying to stay focused effective time um, time management, effective communication, um, and constantly running opportunities against my personal values and mission so that then I can identify should I say yes or should I say no to, to an opportunity or a situation.
1: And I I want to go back to your uh, second point about risk. I agree with all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But what happens if you take a calculated risk and it's not working out? I think that. Reviewing the situation and maybe departing from it can also install fear. But I think that what we've learned in the past two years, we can't live in fear and that situations change. So I, I wanted to get your input on that.
0: Definitely. So situations do change and um, every outcome obviously in life won't be what we want it to be. But I do think if we're able to look and certainly I do look at a situation and say, well, you know, what did I learn from that? So that the next time Mm -hmm. I take a calculated risk, I'm a little bit better, you know, at it. And I think that that's really important. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say and read a lot of successful people's writings and have talked about there has to be some failure in the journey to be successful. And so um, we can think about that too when a calculated risk doesn't work out.
1: You know, success is not um, falling down. The success is, you know, getting back up, mm-hmm. you know, so we all fall down and find the strength to get back up and knowing that everybody has a hard day, hard time. But, you know, you can keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to ask also in the last year, you lost your longtime partner, Therese Paler, mm-hmm. He was so loved and respected as a person by everyone who knew him and for his work as a sports journalist. So I wanted to know what has that you about yourself and how have you channeled your grief?
0: Well, I, you know, I miss Therese every every day. Um, I had a lot of friends. Um. Former professors, former students, a lot of people from different corners of my life that have been consistent in reaching out to me over the past year. And they kept saying the same thing over and over. You know, Ebony, you are resilient. Ebony, you are tough. Ebony, you're going to make it through this. And I kept thinking, I don't even know if these people know what they're talking about um, because it is such a challenging experience. But the way that I've channeled my grief and something I'm really proud of is that Therese has two scholarships in his name. And I'm proud that our um, all of our employers, meaning Therese and my employer, former and current, um, donated to the scholarship that was started Um, when he passed away and, and, you know, and so that scholarship at Howard um, quickly became an endowment. Um, within about you know six months or so, we had more than a hundred thousand dollars in hand. Um, the Kansas City Chiefs, which he covered for a long time as a sports journalist here in Kansas City, where I live, um, I moved here to join him so we could you know plan our future. That organization contributed, and so I'm really proud of that. And then at the same time that I was putting. A lot of energy um, into that scholarship. Friends over at Power Mizzou renamed a scholarship that they have at my alma mater, the University of Missouri. And so, you know, Therese has a scholarship. It's the Power Mizzou Alumni Journalism Scholarship in memory of Therese Paler. And he covered the University of Missouri sports for a long time for the Kansas City Star newspaper. So I'm just not aware of a Black journalist under 40, who has two, both of these scholarships are endowments. It means they're not going anywhere in his name um, at two significant um, universities. And I know that that would make Therese very proud because he had said to me many months before he passed away that someday he hoped to have a scholarship in his name. And so fundraising for the two of those and outreaching to those organizations, um, those universities to make sure that I'm doing all that I can can to support it and then um, staying in touch to keep his parents updated. That is very um, significant and important to me, um, you know, to do that.
1: And you just, you know, I, I, I feel it. That, you know, with Therese, I never had the opportunity to meet him, but the the love that uh, he generated and he will always be remembered in part because of the work that you and others are doing. So he said that he was proud and we know that he is proud of everything that you're doing. So thank you for sharing that with us. And winding down, is there anything else that you would like us uh, that you would like to add?
0: Well, you know, I am on the uh, the board of United We um, here in Kansas City, and it's formerly the Women's Foundation. And so I think that it's worthy to uh, mention this organization. Um, it focuses on um, civic and economic empowerment of women. Um, it has a, a program, the Appointments Project, um, throughout cities in different parts of the United States. It helps women get training to go um, into civic service and understand what that is about. Um, Um, And so I'm I'm really proud to be a part of that um, organization as a part of my community service.
1: That sounds great. Thanks for sharing that with us.
0: Now, I
1: am asking all of our extraordinary guests um, the same following three questions. And now it's your turn. And the first question is, what do you do for self-care?
0: Sure. So um, I try to keep a regular exercise schedule. I try to make uh, time for personal relationships and um, I haven't done as much of this because of the pandemic, but I'm starting to do a little bit more is I like to travel. I like to see new places. Um, You know, I love to see beaches. Um, So to me, that is a lot of fun and is a part of my self-care.
1: Now, this isn't one of the three questions, but where is your next hope for destination?
0: Oh, I just booked it the other day. Um, I <laughs> one of my really good friends uh, said that she's going to join me, and we're joining some other friends uh, over in France um, later this summer. So we're going to have a little getaway there. That'll be nice.
1: Oh, just have fun, have fun. Um, and speaking of fun, there's not a lot of fun in the world today. Um, you know, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the, the ongoing uh, pandemic, inflation, et cetera, et cetera. So there, we acknowledge there's a lot of negative, but there is positive. And I wanted to ask you, where do you see hope in today's world?
0: You know, I see hope with the youth. I have to tell you that, like, my former students are so awesome. And not only was I um, on faculty as a professor um, for a little while with the University of Missouri, my, my alma mater, you know, but I have taught as an adjunct instructor in every city I've lived in. So I have... I have thousands, I know it may be hard to believe, but I have thousands of students across this country that are working in communications and journalism. And they have been a force of being in touch with me in the last year. And I have former students from Wayne State in Detroit, Cleveland State University, Cuyahoga Community College, Kent State, Emerson in Boston, Southern New Hampshire, um, soon to be Yale. And so, um, and of course, the Missouri School of Journalism. And so, I mean, they are so, as a group, um so hopeful, excited about their future. Um, chat with me often about job opportunities, career development. Um, I'm always happy to serve as a reference for them. And so just getting like their energy when they reach out to me um, excites me and makes me hopeful. Um, yeah.
1: You're the second guest who has pointed out that the hope right now is in our youth. And I could not agree with you more. So so go, young people, go. And the last question is name the three black women who
0: you admire and why. Sure. Um, So first would be my aunt's. Um, Angela Fields. She is a social worker at Norton's Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky. She Mm -hmm. is formerly uh, the chief social worker for the University of Louisville Hospital before it merged with Norton's. And she is a leader in my family and is the primary caregiver for my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And so um, I see, you know, I have a a lot of respect for her and um, admire her a lot. Um, Someone else I would mention would be Alice Dunnigan, and she is a native of Kentucky, the state where I was born. She uh, became the first black woman uh, to be a correspondent um, to cover the White House, the Supreme Court um, and the State Department in the 1940s. And we know that that could not have been easy. No. And then the third person, I would say I was thinking about this um, you know, in in light of Black History Month and Women's History Month and just reflecting on people. And uh, Dr. Alexa uh, Kennedy was the first Black woman neurosurgeon. And when I was in um, high school, I read a book that had um, pictures of successful Black women, and she ascended to that accomplishment in the early 1980s. And I had thought at one point, oh, I might want to be, I might want to be a doctor, I might want to go into medicine. My skills in communication were much better than my science scores in school. Um, but um, I always really um, respected her and really admired her story.
1: Well, thank you for sharing these three women. We applaud them and we admire them for the, the roads that they have journeyed on and the shoulders on which we stand. Now, Ebony, thank you so much for your time. We do want to point out that, as you said, that there is an endowed scholarship in Therese's name that was created as his alma mater, um, Howard University, and it will assist future journalists and that you're helping to fund it. And information on that scholarship, as well as the other scholarship at Ebony's alma mater, is featured in the chat box. So please check it out. And, Ebony, as always, you are doing wonderful work, your force of nature, and thank you again. And everyone here, please join us for another wonderful conversation with a woman of color who's making waves and taking names, and have a great rest of your day. I'm Jennifer.
0: Hi, I'm Layla. If you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to hop over to iamblacksuccess.com to access the show notes and transcript. You can also sign up for our newsletter there to ensure you don't miss any of our future content. We
1: also have a favorite ask. It would help us a lot if you could take a moment and leave us a review for the podcast. Even just one sentence would really help and support the work we're doing and help get the show in front of more Black entrepreneurs and leaders. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now go get that positive mindset with an intent to rise above, go way beyond, and keep blazing your trail. I am Black Success.